Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. It is my great pleasure to have as our guest today uh, the person who has really has become one of the real authorities on the issue of, of digital uh, privacy. Uh, Julia England is a uh, Pulitzer-winning uh, Wall Street Journal reporter who, she told me just a few moments ago, began what she thought was going to be a, a project that was going to last a year or a few months, and now looks like, she said, 10 years, you think? <laughs> I feel like I'm going to It's 10 just getting more complicated story. and more and deeper, and I think that uh, there's no question about that. Uh, the issue is privacy. I was... Um, made aware of the of the, the the genuine threat of personal privacy in the most fundamental way a few years ago in this room when we had another speaker talking about this subject and he basically said that if you are online um, you are delusional if you think that everything in your computer is not something that someone who has the skills and interest uh, would be able to get into in a very in very short order. That's just one dimension, of course, of what we're talking about. It is a subject that's very timely, and Julia, I'm very glad to welcome you, and uh, the floor is yours. Oh, right. Thank you. Um, thank you to everybody. I'm really honored to be here, and um, I, um, I thought maybe I would just start with a little bit of a background of who am I and what authority do I have to talk about this issue. So um, just uh, briefly, um, I'm really a child of technology. I grew up in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto. My parents were both programmers, and I learned to program computers in fifth grade. I was just um, very early on, well, you know. part of the problem. I am part <laughs> of the problem. <laughs> um, so I spent, I tried to rebel um, and go into journalism. I thought it would be a really different career. I went and moved to Washington, D.C. after college, and I was reporting about Congress. And um, But soon people realized that I was the only person in the newsroom who understood technology. So basically for the past 20 years I've been covering technology, which has been much, um, much fun. Uh, and I went and wrote a book in 2007. I, I said, you know, this social networking thing is going to be really big. Um... I'm going to write a book about the one that I think is going to be really big. It's called MySpace. <laughs> I made the wrong call. <laughs> um, but actually, MySpace, it was a really fun story about how they didn't want to be sold and lots of battles between media moguls. And it was a fun book. Um, and while I was reporting it, I, um, I learned about how they were having a hard time selling advertising. And so they were taking all the information from their user profiles and actually selling that data to advertisers. And that wasn't really the main point of my book, but when I came back from book leave to the journal, I thought, you know, I wonder if more people are doing that. That seems kind of creepy. So I proposed to my editors, I want to do a series called What They Know, and just find out what do people know about me, right? And uh, to this day, I'm that series is continuing. <laughs> I have never gotten off of that beat. Um, you know, I was... Um, it's been an incredible journey. We started the What They Know series in 2010, and it's, um, you know, I, I'm going to tell you just a 
like a few of the things that we have found, just in case you haven't been reading all of it, because I think that like the findings are kind of amazing. So we started off with just what was the scope of online tracking? How many people are tracking you while you're looking at a web page? And we found, you know, that the top 50 websites had, you know, 2,000 trackers on them. Dictionary.com, if you looked at 10 pages, had 234 tracking files. Then we did, what about the top kids sites? Turns out there was even more tracking going on on those. We looked at apps. So how many, what apps are stealing your data? This is back in 2010 before people had thought about that issue. And uh, we found, you know, that almost all of them were taking personal information. We, we broke a story about how Microsoft uh, had crushed the privacy features that its technologists had tried to build in to the, pro to the web browser in order to appease advertisers. We wrote a story about how Nielsen, the big media um, company, media monitoring company, broke into a medical online forum to copy patient messages for marketing purposes. We wrote about how Capital One was offering different cards to different people based on whether they assessed them arriving on their website as mid-scale income, upper income, based on the digital data that they obtained just from that one visit to the site. That was all 2010. In 2011, we moved on to the government surveillance. We were like, you know, I think we're missing a piece here. <laughs> so uh, we, um, we talked about how um, the feds were using uh, your cell phone location to track you without a warrant. We talked about how you can read uh, email without a warrant. We talked about the um, Gmail that was obtained in the WikiLeaks case. We talked about one tiny internet provider in California, SonicNet, that stood up to the government, tried to say, no, I don't want to turn over the email, and got denied. We talked about the rise of the $5 billion off-the-shelf surveillance technology market. So before 2000, there really surveillance technology was only available to like the NSA, CIA, etc. Uh, now you can go and buy off-the-shelf surveillance technology. We, we um, wrote about that. And then we talked um, in 2012, this year, this past year, we talked about the impact. What is it like to live in a world of total surveillance? Now that we've established total, total surveillance is happening, um, we talked about um, some gay teens who were outed by Facebook who, when they joined a group on campus, Facebook sent a note to their parents saying they've joined the queer chorus. Both of them... Um, were, you know, had terrible experiences with their parents disavowing them. Uh, we talked about a car dealer that knows what you're shopping for. When you arrive on the lot, they've already, they already have matched your online browsing, so they already know what you're in market for. We talked about how Staples is um, offering different prices to different people based on the digital data on their website. So we talked to um, two women, Trudy and Kim. They live 10 miles apart from each other in Texas. Trudy saw a stapler for $16, and Kim got it for $14. And this is based on Staples' assessment of their neighborhood and what they'd be willing to pay. Um, and then we uh, talked about the terrorism agency, the National Counterterrorism Center, that just got this new authorization to copy and inspect um, innocent civilian files when previously they had to have a reason to suspect you of a crime. So that's just a small sampling <laughs> of <laughs> what we found. And um, the, the problem is that the findings are overwhelming. And what happens is people start to feel like, well, I, I don't care. I, I can't do anything about it. This is just the price of admission into society and give up, right? And so I'm now currently writing a book because I feel like I want to answer that question of why should I care? And what should I do about it? Because I think we're now at a point where we understand the facts. The facts are that everything is sort of up for grabs. And the next question is, well, what can we do? And does it matter, right? Maybe it doesn't matter at all. So 
I want to start with just the simple question of, does it matter? Like, what is, uh, what is privacy, right? So, um, you don't have a blackboard, okay. Um, uh, so I was going to just put up the definition of privacy, but I will just tell you the definition in of Merriam-Webster is two things. The quality or state of being apart from company or observation, seclusion, and B, freedom from unauthorized intrusion. So let's start with A, the quality or state of being apart from company or observation, seclusion. So that's basically the I want to be left alone, teenager, slam the door, go away mom, right? <laughs> like, and I don't think that's actually what we're talking about. Some people use privacy in that way, but that's not what the issue that I'm talking about here. That is something that is a it varies in by culture and by time of day, right? My feeling of wanting privacy in terms of being left alone varies minute by minute. So I'm going to discard that one. So then we're going to talk about the second definition, which is freedom from unauthorized intrusion. So the problem with that one is that currently every intrusion that I just described to you was A, authorized, and B, not likely to have been intrusive. It may have been remote, nobody broke into your house, right? So the problem is our previous conception of privacy and what constitutes a privacy violation actually doesn't account for the current situation. The current situation is that our legal regime says all of the things I talked about are fine and that nobody broke into your house so you don't have anything to worry about. So I am trying to reframe privacy in my book coming out next year called Tracked Advertisement um, <laughs> uh, that we should call it indiscriminate tracking. Right? And what I mean by indiscriminate tracking is, I mean indiscriminate in that it sweeps up a lot of people, and I mean unjustified. That it's not, uh, it is legal, but it just doesn't satisfy our social norms about what we think is appropriate. And that is a big question, right? What's justified, what's not justified? And that's sort of the topic of my book, and I think that's the topic of public debate that we will have for the next 10 years. Um, but in my definition, I just want to point out that so I'm not including what people call big data. I would call that justified but indiscriminate, right? So widespread tracking but for some very good purpose, right? My husband is currently flying drones across Africa to measure the quality of the soil to help farmers plant food that will be better for their, you know, soil quality. I think most people would say that's pretty justified. So big data in that sense is not a privacy invasion except in some cases, right? Um, similarly, there's unjustified tracking that is not indiscriminate. So that's peer-to-peer -peer surveillance. Like, it's really terrible when somebody is stalked or, you know, something terrible happens, but it's a targeted attack. It's an attack from one person to another person, and I think we do have laws to address most of that. And technology, surveillance technology is used, but that is also something that I think is not the topic of my conversation. So I am talking about indiscriminate tracking. And the question is, really, what do we consider unjustified, right? That's how I'm describing tracking that is a problem. And I think that's something that we as a society are figuring out. For instance, um, in the past month, both Seattle and Charlottesville, Virginia, pulled the plug on police drone programs because they decided that they don't think that it's okay for the police to fly drones over their cities. And I think that like there's a social norm that's being established there about domestic drone use that's probably very quickly, maybe by the time my book even comes out, will have already been established, that a lot of cities will have passed this. Because something about flying 
this thing in the air to spy on you just it breaks everybody's idea of what's a justified tracking right but there are other things that are totally on the fence right i think most people are sort of willing to submit to enhanced tsa screening although that is unjustified and indiscriminate by some standards but other people would say it's justified it's the price you pay um, another thing we don't consider okay generally is advertisers tracking our every move online, right? The do not track debate that's been going on, you know, the polls consistently show that people are in support of a simple, easy way to opt out of being tracked. And so once again, I would say that that, although it is fully legal, that there's a social norm there that seems to be that we don't really appreciate being followed around on our every move online. So, um... So basically, that's sort of what I, what I call privacy, indiscriminate tracking. And then um, the question that people ask me is, well, what's the harm, right? What is the big deal, even if the drone is flying or if the ads are following me around? Um, and so I have divided the harms up into four categories. So the first one is simply just the fact that there's a hidden audience, you know, that you don't know who's looking at you. This is the classic Facebook example, which is that you think you're interacting with a friend, but there's actually this hidden audience uh, that you don't know about, which is Facebook. And then Facebook sometimes takes that information and does things with it in ways that you don't quite predict or understand. Um, and oftentimes, by the way, in these sort of scenarios, there's a case that can be made that you should have known, right? And I think that's also one of the things that we have to understand as a society. Like, are we willing to say that just because it was written in fine print somewhere that that's still okay, right? That's a decision we have to make. And right now, most people are saying, yes, that's okay, you should have known, but I wonder if we're going to get to a point where maybe you shouldn't expect that that's a fair trade-off. You don't think that when you buy a car, and if it doesn't work, that just because in the fine print it said this car actually we're selling you isn't going to work, is that's not what we consider a real consumer transaction. Um, the second uh, harm that I talk about is the hall of mirrors. So the fact that when you go online, um, all you see is stuff tailored to you, right? The idea that Staples is showing you the staple price that it thinks you're going to pay, and Capital One is showing you the card that you, it thinks you're going to want. Um, I wrote this story last year about how Google had this algorithm before the election where if you search for Obama, then on your subsequent searches on any topic, it would insert Obama news. So your next search, toothpaste is like Obama's <coughs> thoughts on toothpaste would be the three middle links on the page. And it wasn't doing this for Romney. And they said it was just their algorithm had determined that people who were interested in Obama wanted more Obama news, but people who were interested in Romney didn't want more Romney news. And, you know, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, I like to think about it as a person who works at a newspaper. Like, can you imagine if when you turn to the home section, it said, like, we saw that you read a story about Obama on the front page. So in this story about how to redecorate your home, we're also going to talk about Obama's views on redecoration, right? But for Romney readers, they wouldn't see that, right? That's just... Like, we would be hung out to dry as journalists for that kind of behavior, right? But somehow Google, it's like, oh, it's okay because they're giving you what you want, right? And that's what I call this hall of mirrors, which is, like, you don't actually control the, quote, what you want, but you're surrounded by it. And I think that that is some limits our political discourse in a way that we also need to consider whether we consider justified. Um, then the third harm is financial, financial manipulation. So Staples is the, is the leading indicator of this, right? This idea that 
data about you is being used to provide tailored pricing. And that has always been true to some extent. If you go to different neighborhoods, milk costs different amounts of money, right? But it's different when it comes to you and it appears as if you have no control over it, right? Because at least when you're going in the real world, you're like, I could go to another neighborhood where the milk is cheaper. But if it's only you're presented with these higher prices all the time because you're walking around with a dollar sign above you that you don't know about, a credit score that goes ahead of you into the door of your virtual store, that is something that I think can lead to um, you know, things that we might consider socially not what we represent our values. And um, you know, we have rules about redlining. It's not clear that any of this has gotten to that point yet, but it's something that I think we're also going to have to think about whether if you those... would explain redlining, I think some people might not know what you mean. So redlining is basically, you know, there's, there are rules on the book that say you can't do price discrimination in ways that are based on race. And um, so we do have certain limitations like that, but it's very hard to prove those cases, and um, mostly, um, and and... I don't think that a lot of the situations that we've seen online, like the staple situation, they're not clear cut like that. It's much more about sort of your perceived willingness to pay. Um, and the final thing, the harm, is the police lineup, which is what I, my name for the reversal of the presumption of innocence, right? So the idea in our society has always been you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. But this constant surveillance put you in the lineup in a way that you were never in before, right? So the drone circling overhead looking for people doing bad things means all of a sudden that you're in the crosshairs of the police when you weren't a suspect before. Um, and so <coughs> that is something that um, I think all of us should question whether we're up for that because there's a presumption of innocence that like is something we I think hold dear to us and it depends on how far you want to go I mean think you know cell phone tracking drones you know on and on automatic license plate readers we wrote a story about a guy in San Leandro California who had never been had any record with the police department it's just a guy with two kids and um, then they installed automatic license plate readers on their cop cars, and so every time they drive by any car, they take a picture and keep track of where that car was seen. So after two years, he did a Freedom of Information Act request with the police department. After two years, they had 300 records of his location. And so all of a sudden, he had a file this big at the police department. He never had a file before. They never would have had any information about him before. Uh, and so that's just something that I think we all need to think about, because we're all going to have these files. So basically, those are the four big harms that I've outlined about privacy. There are many others. But then I think the final harm is basically what I call the chilling effects, right? What is it like to live in a world where these kind of things are happening, where you're always a suspect, where you're seeing all these things in the hall of mirrors, where you, have, you can't be sure who's in the hidden audience, where you feel that you're probably subject to financial manipulation? I think ultimately what this does is it chills our speech. It makes us not want to give out any data because we don't know how it's going to be used against us. Certainly you see that already with people learning to censor themselves on Facebook and Twitter. And that is, some of that is just the growing up process, learning how to live in the digital world. But I also wonder how far does that go? If we don't feel like we can share any, anything of real value, then have we chilled ourselves to the point where we don't have free speech, that we're living in a world like where you have to hide in a coffee shop to have a real conversation and whisper in East Germany? You know, that is not what I think we want in our world. 
And so these are the issues that I'm trying to tackle in this book. I don't have all the <coughs> answers. Um, I think that basically we're going to have to figure it out as a society over the next um, decade, and it's going to take some time. If I can go a little bit longer, I just want to tell you where I briefly think it's going. So basically, I see this period of time like the turn of the century. At the turn of the century, we were moving to an industrial economy. We had factories, and we were obsessed with mass production. It gave us a lot of things, mechanization, factories. We were able to win wars. We could produce canned goods. You know, everybody was really enamored of it. But there was also a downside. We didn't have, you know, child labor laws. We didn't have FDA to monitor the quality of our meat. We didn't have a lot of things. And at that time, there was a lot of sort of muckraking journalism that went on about, you know, Upton Sinclair with the jungle, talking about people who were falling into the meatpacking machines. And, you know, Ida Carbell wrote about the abuses by Standard Oil. And we ended up as a society coming to grips with some of the downsides of that and putting in place some regulations. And I think we're just doing the same thing right now with the information age, which is like there's been incredible things about the information age. I'm not willing to give up any of the benefits. But I do want to like limit the downsides, right? And I think we're now just grappling with what are they, how do we address them, and you know, can we put some parameters around them? And I'm going to leave it there. I have more, but I will leave it there and take <laughs> questions. Let me ask the first. And I basically, it's, <clears throat> it's you as a technology person who has said you love the benefits of technology. If you had your own wish, what would the limits be that you've just been describing on on these things? Where would you draw lines? Um, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, I would go. Uh, two places. I mean, that's a hard question, but I basically think that we need some, um, I think that we should take a little bit of a model mm -hmm. from the environment. So um, the environment was something that was, quote, polluted, and then we cleaned up, right? Now, you can put, putting aside climate change, which we mistakenly missed, but you can definitely argue <laughs> that in the past 50 years, we've cleaned up our environment dramatically. And it was a collective action in society. It was something that we all did together. We started with recycling and picking up dog poop. Um, and we moved on to much bigger things like Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. We also did things like the wilderness areas. Just some environment was just too sacred. We needed to protect it. And I think we need the same array of solutions because this is a similar collective action problem. I can't really protect my data, just like I couldn't clean up the environment in my neighborhood very well, I we have to do it all together. So I think we need an array of things. So for instance, I'm very much in favor of, quote, wilderness areas, which is there's some data that probably is just too sacred. I don't think kids should be tracked at all, right? I just think there should be like a, a wall around kids' data. Like they shouldn't even be a person online until they're 30. I mean, Eric Schmidt, <laughs> no, but Eric Schmidt of Google said that you should just get a new name at 30 so that you can erase your childhood. And I'm like, I'm like, that's one option. <laughs> what was your thing? I said, doesn't COPA take care of COPA takes care of some of that, um, but not entirely, right? COPA is still based on what I consult and notice and consent thing, which is basically the idea that once you disclose that you're taking data, it's okay, right? And that's this whole fine print, justified, you know, that the question of whether 
really just disclosing in fine print somewhere means that you, it's okay. And I think that's still an open question. And I would sort of argue that maybe just walling off children's area more completely uh, would be another. Some people would argue medical should be a wilderness area, medical data, financial <coughs> data. I actually believe we kind of need a wilderness area for pseudonyms. There's, um, you know, there's, it's a very difficult for um, people to have fake identities online. And, you know, this is a problem for Arab Spring. Everybody talks about Arab Spring as this incredible moment for Internet action, collective action. But in fact, you know, I'm sure you guys all know the story, but like two days before the Egypt Revolution, Facebook shut down the page of the organizing guy because he was using a fake name. It was only because he knew people at Facebook. He worked at Google and he had friends at Facebook. And so he got it reinstated. But they don't believe in fake names. And so, you know, my question is, are, are revolutions only going to be allowed if you know someone at Facebook, you know? And so, like, where's the safe space for pseudonym speech, right, for fake names, for political action? So that's another kind of wilderness area to consider. Let me ask, uh, we've got two people in the room I know, maybe more, who I feel like really have uh, authority to speak to this as a, as a concept in terms of limits. Martin, why don't you first, and then Paul, I'd love to hear your, your response to... to uh, what you've heard from Julia. You want to go for, uh, okay, I'll start. Um, I'm Martin Nissenholz, and I uh, until very recently was the chief digital officer for the New York Times company. So, um, Before wrote, you start, wrote, I just want to quote what you said to me at breakfast this morning. Let that be a lesson. I was expressing fear of Google, and he said, resistance is futile. <laughs> so, so I just want you to know who you're dealing with. Yeah. <laughs> a coward. <laughs> um, I'm just full disclosure, I'm also on the board of Exalate, so mm -hmm. just as a heads up about that. Fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't think, just speaking personally, Alex, I mean, I don't, everything that you've said strikes me as perfectly reasonable. I guess the only thing that you know, you, you started out by saying that you really want to explore definitions of privacy and, and whatnot, and then went into a fairly lengthy, you know, discussion of, of all the downsides. And I was just wondering whether you saw any upside to any of this stuff. Uh, I do. I see huge upside. Okay, I mean, so you might want to just, yeah. if, you're, if there are four or five things that are just horrible about it, you know, what are the three or four things that actually are not so horrible right. about it. What are the trade-offs is, I guess, what yeah. I'm asking. I mean, so all of these things are trade-offs, right? Right, And so right. Every I, one of them is I completely a agree. All mirrors the opposite yes. is relevancy, right? I mean, obviously, I may want to see advertising that is right. tailored to me. Right? Totally. Yeah. Um, I am not a Luddite. I'm, I no, I love I technology, I and I'm that. not willing to give up anything. In fact, I... <laughs> Don't I don't want to give up my cell phone. I don't want to give up. I, but I do. I do. I don't want my children to grow up though in a world that I feel like is so constrained for them. That's so constrained in terms of their speech. So, um, so okay. I'm talking about negatives again. So right. let but me just. Seems, <laughs> but let seems... me tell you the positive. Okay. So the two things that I think are the one argument that always floors me every time is Julia. This data is immortality. I don't have an answer for that one. So people say to me, look, this is the best, like as a journalist, my job is to chronicle people's lives. 
I would love this kind of data to write a biography about someone, every website they went to. And right. So I do see as a person who collects data and uses it to tell a story that I'm in favor of data collection in that sense. And that is the one thing that I feel I really want access to. Um, I'm worried, though, because actually what the way that the things are going is that people like Aaron Schwartz are totally penalized for over data collection and all of the large institutions can get away with unbelievable amounts of over collection of data. Right. And so I believe that this is about balancing. So if they want that power, then I want the same. Right. And that is like, you know, that is, I think, one very good argument that um, David Brin makes in the Transparent Society. It's a great book about how you're never going to win. Um, any privacy battles, but you can win the arms race. He's like, so if the government wants drones, then every citizen should demand one too, right? And that's like the, that's an interesting intellectual argument. I, I feel myself that the, we, the individuals are sort of underfunded in that arms race, right? And so I don't have huge faith in my ability to win, but I do want that ability. I want that ability to collect data and well, I don't are, want it curtailed. There are companies that are forming now that will, and, they, and, and I think part of the problem has been by the way, it's a very, very tough technology problem, but, but the, the consumer in general, the users in general, <coughs> just haven't really gotten behind this so forcefully. So maybe your book will help, but there are companies that will allow you to totally manage your privacy, your, your, your identity <coughs> online. There are search engines like DuckDuckGo and others that totally don't track you, and yet, you know, the, 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 the normal user, McKinsey did a study a few years back and asked people how much they would want to be paid if, if they would release all of their personal information. By the way, most of what you're talking about is not, it's not PII. And they said $5. So, I mean, I guess the question is, how much do people care right. about this? At yes. The end of the so day? here's my feeling. Like and and you I'm might, not suggesting right. they shouldn't care or that this isn't, but there's just not a lot of evidence that they I completely agree with you. I have the luxury of not living in the real world, so I don't have to address that issue on a day-to-day -day basis of someone who runs like the digital operations. But I would say this. Social norms can change, right? So it used to be like that you would have dot, gone over in a dead faint if you said that like rich women on the Upper East Side wearing furs would like lean over and pick up their dog's poop, right? Social norms change, right? We decided collectively that like that was okay. We were all going to change our behavior, and right. we did. And so I believe that we're in the very beginnings of this, and people don't have any way to value their data. So they're giving it up because there's it's in a completely opaque market, right? There's no, it's the bond market. There's no pricing transparency. And actually, the thing that's really interesting about it from somebody who's on your side of it, the ad tech side of it, basically. The weird thing is that the more that all those companies collect, the m value of the data goes down. Yeah, and so the prices down. are plummeting. So yeah, it's actually it's a terrible, plummeting. vicious plummeting. circle for the businesses who are in the business of right. collecting data. Yeah, so no, weirdly, it's, it's if we could all agree on making data scarce, we could raise the prices of data, and then everyone might benefit. That could be a win-win, right? I could get more money, and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal could stay in business, which would be great. Paul, do you have a thought? <laughs> well, let me come at it a different way. and I'm. I'm I'm the former CEO of Akamai, so we oh. the, the subject of one of your I remember. well recorded stories. <laughs> <laughs> but that was when David was running it. No, I don't think so. No, David worked for me, so we're both. <laughs> right. But he's the one who came in. Yeah. yeah. No, I bought the, no, no, I bought that business. <coughs> okay. We just sold a week ago. 
two weeks from now. Ah, okay. The day add date of that one. Um, so let me let, let me throw this out provocatively in another way. First, I'd say, you know, I disagree that the that the price of your data hasn't been set, but it was set forever ago before the internet came along, and so. Well, let me just make the argument so you can react to it, meaning to be accessible, which is there is no story here. You've done a great job of yellow journalism, and oh my god, <laughs> you have discovered there's gambling at Rick's Cafe. <laughs> but let me suggest, this was settled, I don't know, 20 years ago with this thing, right? Pre the internet. Mm -hmm. Almost everything I knew about me, except its scale. I decided a long time ago. I gave up my information. These people already knew how sick I was, what porn I bought, mm -hmm. where my kids go to school, all that stuff. And I decided the deal is done. You can have my data. I don't have to carry cash around. And I can buy more than I might be able to afford. All we've done now is put it on steroids. <laughs> we've come to the government question, which is the flying overhead. Mm. That's, a, That's different. Yeah. But the consumer piece, which has been the bulk of this, why shouldn't we just think, hey, this was decided before, except now it's aggregated in much bigger pools. But effectively, the consumer has said, done. I don't care. I mean, I think that that is exactly what I'm talking about with justified tracking. So mm -hmm. credit cards are a perfect example of actually what I think should happen with data. So credit cards, hold on. I get, I get tons of, oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, let me finish answering your question, and then you can yell at me the next thing. But um, <laughs> so basically, you know, the thing that's really great about credit cards is it's a totally clear value. Like, I love the fact that I can use it instead of cash, and I also love the fact that they know when someone else is using it, because they know me so well, they call one second after somebody steals my credit card, and they're like, okay, you did not just buy that swimsuit or whatever, and I'm like, yes, you're right, I did not. Cancel. Okay, so we are both, like, getting great value out of this, because they're doing indiscriminate tracking, but I would argue it's justified, because they're fighting fraud. And... Here's the second piece. FICRA, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, is a model for what I believe all data policies should be, which is if your data is used against you, you have redress. You have a right to access and correct that data. Now, if data is going to be used in every part of your life on the Staples website to give you a different price for a stapler, I would argue you also need redress. Okay? Now, that is not where the law is going. However, that is going to be my biggest point in this book, one of my many big points, uh, technological due process, right? Due process for your data. Because right now, what's happening is that there's basically <coughs> excess data created in a transaction. And the company is taking all of it. It's basically up for grabs. It's additional to the normal, your normal banking relationship was this. And then there's additional metadata created. They take it all. They use it for whatever they want, but you don't have any redress rights over any of that additional data that's created in that transaction. And I think that with redress, you could address a lot of these issues, but no one's offering that. And the big data brokers are all fighting it tooth and nail. They do not want to offer redress. So do you think that's, do you think we actually know how to write that law? <clears throat> actually, FICRA is a very good model. I mean, it's, more, it's the only privacy law that I believe really works. Um, and what's it, I don't know its history. How did it? I assume it wasn't written in the first year of credit cards. No, it can't. I actually am not. I'm still researching that, so I don't really know either. But it was, um, it, it was very well done in the sense of focusing on this use misuse of data issue. Um, the question is, all the companies that are in the ad tech business will say the cost of providing redress is too high, right? Because they're only making a one tenth of one cent on your data. 
Are you going to look at the, uh, are you going to try and put a dollar amount on the lobbying effort that goes into stopping this privacy legislation? Because um. it's enormous. <laughs> you know what, it's surprisingly not as enormous as it should be, right, well, considering I, the size of these companies? So. Maybe it isn't enormous on the books, Yes. but the overall influence effort, I, I would submit, is tremendous. Yes, agreed. Well, that's because there's really one business that's doing really well in this country, and that's the tech industry. So no one in Congress wants to say anything. To st- every As soon as you say you're going to break the Internet, like, all bets are off. It's done, right? You know, like, the, and so the question is, like, well... Break the internet, you know, th- what I'm talking about, redress for your data if it's used against you, I don't think that's going to break the internet. But right now I don't see anyone in Congress standing up to say that. I don't think Google's position in Washington is much different from Exxon's in terms of its connections and the way it uses its influence and what it yeah. expects and the kind of money it spends. I don't think it it's spends less different. money. But, it, but it's you sure true. don't read about it. Yeah. Well, it sure stops some legislation not long ago. Oh, and it stops a lot that you never hear. We're, we're going to have uh, now. I'm going to invite uh, students to 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 ask questions. Yes. Uh, good morning. My name is uh, Wendy Garrity. I'm a National Security Fellow, and my question is: I, I loved your talk about privacy. Um, I'm a Marine Corps officer, and my focus is cybersecurity. Hmm. So, how do you get this to the public? So, to the people, I think you're you're kind of showing behind the cloak what the disadvantages are. But, you know, you're in the tech section. How do you get that to the front page so that the people can get this information and they can be the market drivers for the private sector and they can be, you know, people that, that can kind of direct the priorities as far as legislation goes, regulation? And how do you do that? I mean, we have been writing these stories for the front page for yeah. like three years. But, yeah. um, you know, look, it's it's, I think that often, though, issues take a long time. I mean, people have been trying to reform gun laws in the country for a lot longer than they've been trying to reform privacy. And issues take a long time to get resolved. And so I, I guess my personal <clears throat> mission is I, I felt that after three years of writing sort of scary stories, also known <clears throat> affectionately as yellow journalism, um, uh, for the front page, that I wanted to do a book to provide a service to readers because I actually wanted people to have a sense of how they could think about how to frame these issues because after so much exposure to this scary thing is happening that scary thing, people just get overwhelmed, right? So that's why I'm trying to integrate it into a book that hopefully can frame the issue in a way that takes it away, it takes it into an area that maybe then could possibly lead to solutions, maybe. What's the name of the book? Tracked. Other questions from students? Yes, I will just open. Oh, oh, okay. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. My name is Kevin Trogger. I'm a mid-career. I currently am employed by NATO, but I'm considering a career change to move into this area. Um, I have two quick questions. The first is um, the White House says not so long ago put out the consumer privacy mm-hmm. bill of rights, yeah, bill of rights. Mm-hmm. I well I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about whether or not that has any chance of surviving past the front door um, and the second thing is do you think there's any appetite within these companies so within the internet giants mm-hmm. <coughs> to in essence start looking at what the impact societal impact of what they're doing they t- you know if your motto right. is don't be evil yeah um, that one um, okay so I'll start with the privacy bill of rights at the White House introduced you know the thing about that was by the time it got through all the lobbying and it was introduced it was um, it didn't have any redress 
So that was the one thing that the, the companies really fought hard against is no access and correction rights to your data. And so, um, so at that point, you know, I felt it wasn't very watered down. And also it hasn't gone anywhere. There's been no political will. McCain and Kerry introduced a version of the Privacy Bill of Rights as legislation. It hasn't moved. Um, there just isn't, um, there isn't anyone who's sort of leading the charge in Congress on that issue. Um, as for the companies and whether there's a political will, interestingly, I think that there is, an, um, for the first time, some market uh, forces promoting privacy. So Microsoft has decided that they're going to promote privacy and that's going to be their angle. Right, and we've never really seen compete, companies competing on privacy before, and so th I think there will be some of that, but it's going to be, I think, mostly on the margins when it comes to companies, basically Google and Facebook, who make all their money on this. It's going to be really hard for them to compete too aggressively on that. But certainly, other companies like Microsoft that makes most of their money on other stuff can compete on that front. Mm -hmm. So. We'll see if there's a privacy market emerging. There's also a couple companies that are trying to offer privacy protection software and charge money for it, and it's all you know very nascent, and consumers are not generally willing to pay because they don't see a benefit. And also, some of this stuff is just hard to use. I've been trying to use a lot of it. It's very hard to use as privacy software. Thank you. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Laura Weizmann yost and I'm a Neiman Fellow this year, and also work for the Associated Press. Okay. And um, this might seem a little far field, but I just came from a biotech class, mm -hmm. and we were talking just about privacy, uh, rights to your biological mm -hmm. um, material. Yes, and, right. and I was wondering if you see any parallels in terms of after it's left you and now it's in the public sphere um, for your personal data with the you know biological material and whether there's anything to be learned from legislation that has been created around... Right. Well, I don't know that there is any protection for your biological material. Is there? I mean, very, not, very, little, very little. I mean, it's the same issue. Be, there's, like, yeah. they're starting to be... Well, there's discussion about it, right? And people have... There's been a few DNA privacy laws have been passed in several states, but um, but it's actually a very similar issue, which is we did a big story about this woman who was trying to get access to her own heartbeat data from her pacemaker, and uh, the company wouldn't give it to her, right? It, they said it's their data, and they're selling it and whatever. And, you know, so it's actually very much the same <laughs> issue, you know, which is you don't own your data, and this is somewhat of an intellectual property discussion. Do you own your data? And there are some um, companies that have that are betting that eventually you will be able to own your data and then sell it. But see, that model, it, it has to have scarcity. Because right yeah. now, because your data it. is not scarce, you can't actually, even if you own it, somebody else has a copy of it, right? So until data can be made scarce, which is why I actually think there is a business model to be argued here, is that like it would benefit Google if they were the only one that had your data, and if they were a trusted party, and I had a relationship with them, when I would ask them to market it for me. Like That could change the whole dynamics of it, right? But that's not currently happening, but I think that's a similar issue with um, biological material. Is it's, it's almost identical in that sense. Dorothy Zinberg, you've been engaged in this area for a long time. What's your reaction to this? It's a terrific presentation, but I guess as an older person, I was thinking of lifestyles that would change as a result of this. Uh, one thing would be norms that are changing, and our younger people just saying, I couldn't care less. It's out there, that's my life, I don't care about privacy anymore. You're hung up on that in the past generation. And that might be a major normative change. Two, on how things 
to answer your question, I think it's a matter of uh, numbers. As soon as enough people find out what's going on in their lives, and they have a class action suit or something, uh, you're going to begin to get a kind of running answer to your questions and people saying, hey, you can't do that to me. And then, <laughs> third, I must say, uh, I'm sure this will go outside of this room, um, <laughs> that I was thinking when I was a young girl, there was a very famous professor of history at Harvard, his name was Oscar Hamblin, and he said to me once, he said, if I were going to have an affair, and he was a very happily married man, I would go to Lincoln during the day because that's when all the husbands are in the city and I could go to Lincoln and nobody would know the difference. You can't do that anymore. <laughs> what? Too much about. <laughs> what? You thought too much about yes. it. <laughs> but the question is, how does it impact closer relationships than just this kind of data of being followed? Nobody uh, has a private life. And what does that mean to <laughs> So I think that is, the that is the central question. Are we willing to live with the fact that we just decided as a society that everything is a postcard and nothing is a sealed letter, right? <laughs> is that what we've decided? Like we just don't value the mm -hmm. sealing of the letter and keeping it in the, the knowledge that it, it can only be opened? You know, there's only four like law enforcement reasons to open a letter. One is like a fugitive, you have to have a warrant. Like there's like, it's incredible what it takes to open a letter, right? Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, you know, Gmail, first of all, they're reading it. And then secondly, it seems as though anyone else can read it too. Um, with, you know, you know, they don't need a warrant to read your email. So I think that like, that is a very important question. And it's something that is worth taking seriously because I don't think that's the kind of world I want my children to live in. Now, when you talk about youth, though, I just want to say the research shows that you're, that, that is a misperception. Youth are very interested in privacy. They want privacy from their parents. The parents think that kids don't want privacy because they're sharing everything with each other. But what they don't realize is that those kids are going to great lengths to mask all that from them, <laughs> right? So it's actually, it's all about what, who do you want privacy from at that age? You're only thinking about one threat model. You're thinking about your parents. Eventually, you'll start thinking about your future employers and all that stuff, but that will come with time. Nolan and then Diane. Yeah. Um, I have several related questions. One, is there any significant difference in the harm done by drone surveillance than from helicopter or satellite surveillance? Um, two, um, do corporations own our digital personhood? And if so, is there any protection coming from the 13th Amendment? And by digital personhood, I mean, all the personal information about a person's uh, regarding his or her habits, history, DNA, preferences, and what so have you. Um, next, I'd like to ask, at what point does this kind of manufactured consent of corporations basically making choices for us because they have all of this information knowing our preferences, um, unwind the whole notion of free will, that we're making rational Reason, choice. Okay, let's leave. Let's leave it at three. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Wow, those are sort of big questions. Okay, I'll take the easy one first, which is, um, you know, drones are the only reason that drones are any more disturbing than a satellite or helicopter is mostly because they can go lower and closer generally to that target. So, you know, there are drones that can actually fly, you know, right into this room, right? And so, oh yes. But you have higher resolution cameras now. So yes, agreed. I, I actually think that people, when they talk about drones, it's because largely 
it's because drones are being used to kill people overseas. And so that is, I think, the baggage that drones come with. But, uh, but aerial surveillance of any kind, manned or unmanned, is, I think, equivalent, right, depending on how much they can see. Um, I don't know how to address digital personhood and free will, except for the fact that I, I share concerns about both of those things and how we'll be able to express ourselves. Well, you raised the issue about. Um, no, no, we got other people who are going to have to, you know, get into the conversation. We've only got about ten minutes left. Yeah, uh, why, don't, why don't you come and ask after, after, uh, after, after it's over? Yeah, bye. Hi, Julia. I I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, by unfriending people. Um, she unfriended everybody, it wasn't just me. <laughs> um, so I want to ask the question, how do you run for, how did your son run for office in 20 years when there's all this data about him out in the world? How are we going to have, um, I mean. Right. That's a good question. So, um, you know, I have a, a friend. Okay, first of all, I'll just say that uh, part of my book is the why do I why should we care about privacy and that's what I talked about. But the other part of it is what should we do about it. So I am attempting to do all sorts of things to protect my privacy in in the hopes that I can alert you, the readers, which ones are just too much of a pain in the ass and which ones are actually worth doing. Um, so for instance, I have switched entirely from Google to DuckDuckGo for search and I'm perfectly happy Every once in a while, I need to use Google Maps because Google Maps basically is the best mapping. But I have found that basically I can find everything I need. Um, and so I'm doing all sorts of things like that. And so what I did last week is I unfriended all 666 of my Facebook friends because I came to the conclusion that I couldn't control the hidden audience on Facebook. And yet, as a reporter and an author, I needed to be there. I needed to have visibility into that world. I couldn't be completely locked. So I wanted to have a presence, so I had to unfriend everybody, but still sort of be there as a lurker. And, um, you know, it's been an interesting experiment, and painful, actually, because a lot of people feel personally when you unfriend them. And I've gotten a lot of heartfelt emails about that. Um, but your question was actually about... Which is, uh, like, how in the future are you going to run for office? Oh, how will you run for office? So, you know, that is a really... Yes. So, in fact, one of my friends suggested to me, he said, look, you're not doing your children a service because you're not letting them create digital profiles. Now, my kids are five and eight, so I personally don't think they need digital profiles yet. But, um, you know, even though, but this person was arguing to me, like, they're not going to have a future. So what you need to do, this person wants to start a company where <laughs> they will outsource to India people who build digital profiles for you. So all day, every day, they'll be tweeting and Facebooking and on topics that you choose, and then you buy one at age 20, right? It's been built up for 20 years. No, this is totally going to happen, guys. I recommend starting this business now. And, like, this is, you know, and so this uh, this might be what has my son has to do. Yes, over here. My question is regarding data privacy from an international perspective. Like you mm -hmm. talked about India, I'm from India. I've attended some of the meetings in the government of India office where there are growing concerns that Google and Microsoft has more data about Indians than, than India has. has. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, how do you see this from an international perspective? Because the US government can have access to data. Anyone can have, I mean, Google right. and Microsoft as data giants. 
Right. Well, it's complicated because Google and Facebook in particular are so big, right, that they are almost, you know, they're these multinational actors that are hard for any government to regulate. And that is like, you know, that's a sort of a, a problem of the Internet itself, that it's just a very hard to govern. But I would say, though, that the U.S. has sort of the... I mean, most countries, I don't know if that India has this, but a lot of westernized countries actually do have a baseline comprehensive privacy law, which does allow access and correction rights. And so um, the U.S. is actually unique am amongst the western countries in not having that. I don't believe that India has one either, uh, particularly since they're pursuing that biometric identification of every single Indian, right? This is actually, my husband's Indian, and we fight about this at the dinner table because I think it's an invasion of privacy, and he thinks it's going to get poor people fed. And he's probably right. <laughs> yes. Well, my question is about uh, your views on perhaps a change in norms. Uh, in my experience working for a large healthcare company analyzing claims data, uh, there were very stringent rules about using the data, the medical records, for specific people. It was all right to aggregate the data mm -hmm. into a database and analyze the anonymous right. data um, and the relationships among the variables in the database. But we could not, and it was strongly believed, use that data to target individuals. And this is why I think Google is evil, because it's changed that norm. Everything now is patterned to make people buy goods or to vote one way or the other. And the use of all of this data is specific to the individual. Plus the fact that they link databases, which is another problem that uh, should not uh, be swept under the carpet. If I go to uh, Star Market, uh, I let them have my purchase information and I get a discount on some goods. But they should not link that data to other databases. And whether right. they're doing it or not, I don't know. Right. So the real question is, are you making a distinction between these two types of use of data? Between aggregated, aggregated and anonymous. You know, it's really hard because the truth is that like in the medical field, the aggregated de-anonymized data is actually aggregated and de-anonymized. But in the online advertising world, it's so easily linked to your, um, to your uh, identity. And we've done so many studies showing how, how much personally identifiable data leaks. In fact, we did a survey of the top 1,500 websites to see how many of them were actually sending your email to, or your username to third parties. And I just want to point out that the Wall Street Journal was doing the most. So we, we had to out ourselves. It was very embarrassing. We were sending it to like dozens of people. Um, but it's, it's just that the online environment is incredibly leaky. And so personally, your name is being attached to your data much more often than the companies who claim it's anonymous would say. But in the healthcare field, I would say that in some, that I would fall, some of that research you're talking about, I would put into the industry discriminate but justified, right? So I'm all in favor of medical research, and I think that if you need to do all this data analysis to figure out to cure cancer, like, I am all for that, right? And I think that most people are for that, and I think that that is actually a great um, compromise that has been reached is this de-anonymization. All right, but what if you collect the data from an individual 
and you run it through a screen and you find out that that person is predisposed to have a cancer. Which right. So then you're talking about as well. yeah. is that all right? Right. So that's where I would put like sort of financial manipulation, which is that like what's going to happen is in Hall of Mirrors, which is the outcomes are going to be predict your outcomes will be predicted, right? Your data will be used to predict outcomes and then present you with options already based on these predicted outcomes. I believe that that in some ways limits your choices as a as an individual and this is sort of the free will question. How much of that are we willing to accept? Peter. Um I'm Peter Hamby. I'm a Shornstein Fellow for CNN. Uh, Micro-targeting isn't a new thing in political campaigns, mm -hmm. but <clears throat> the Obama campaign and several nonprofits in the Democratic side of the party have really developed these models based on linking a bunch of data yep. together. Did you have any, um, did you find anything that they did this election cycle troublesome? How closely did you follow I it? I did follow it. Um, you know, the thing is that it's so closely held what right. they actually did that it was hard for me to get a read on it. There were reports, you know, that they were tracking your every move, and then there were reports that it was really just your email address. And so I could never quite get a sense of exactly how much data they had, and they've been very secretive, of, um, the Obama campaign in yeah. particular, right, because they were very sophisticated in their micro-targeting. Um, I believe that you know a lot of this comes down to secondary usage so the thing is if you go to the obama campaign and you sign up to be a volunteer and you're like all in like that is one thing but if they're taking data that you contributed in some other realm and using that in targeting for political speech i i think that that is the question that is the thing that like gets into the unjustified realm for me which is the secondary usage you think you're in a transaction with one party but you're in fact in a transaction with all these other parties right and unfortunately that is the case with a lot of data and most likely much of well, their data came from well they did that in 08 that. and they've talked about that um, right. this time that like you said, kept it pretty private, but they're absolutely linking yeah, commercial right. data with whatever you sign up for on Facebook. Or so we did write out. a story um, two years ago about this woman who all she was seeing was Republican ads because, like, they had linked her voter files to her Bible reading, and like, so all she right. ever saw was Bible ads and Republican ads. And by the way, they were perfectly targeted, but she hated it. Right. <laughs> I'm Norm Williams. I am with the Christian Science Monitor on Hi. the business side. I'm actually here. Uh, for a journalism course at the Extension School. Um, my question is, uh, availability of privacy data to journalists is a benefit. Um, what is the Wall Street Journal's policy about accessing private data? Can you tell us of abuses in the industry, journalism industry, of that? And will you be arguing for uh, self-imposed limits on journalism? Do you mean on our business side? Like what data our business side collects? Or do you mean what I collect as a journalist? You collect as a journalist. Oh. I mean, so the thing about the journalistic data collection model is it's it's opt-in, <laughs> right? We ask you if you want to be interviewed, then you talk to us. And then it's very transparent, and it's a single-time use. You know, you when I interview well, somebody... Well, and the gun location would be an right. example of one that wasn't opt-in. Right. If you owned a gun and the newspaper decided that, that would be... Oh, you're talking about that kind of data well, usage. I don't know. Is okay. that what you're talking about? Okay. Data-driven um, data data journalism, right. Okay, so the question is whether the data is in, like, in the public domain, right? So journalists have always been very aggressive about getting whatever data they can get in the public domain. And I would argue for my right to do that, you know, right up until the <laughs> First Amendment, you know, comes. And, you know, because I just think that that is what we do. We are We are here to challenge authority and provide as much data as possible. Now, obviously, my employer... News Corp went too far hacking phones of celebrities, and so I would never do that, and no one at the Wall Street Journal would ever condone that. So there are limits, but I believe that those limits are pretty well established and not as much in contention. Um, despite the Newton um, 
gun database, if that's not the first time anyone's ever publicly disclosed a gun database, and it is in it was in the public domain. I'm sorry to say we're out of time. This has been very interesting. Yeah, thanks so Thank much. you. Thank you very much.